Hello and welcome to the Beyond Resilience Life podcast, a show about life adversity, how to overcome it and transform your life. This is your host, Dr. Lidiana Garcia, a licensed psychologist in Los Angeles, California. And even though my hope is to deliver information that can be helpful for you to overcome adversity and transform your life, it is not meant to be a substitute for being diagnosed and treated by a licensed mental health, medical, and related professional. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Beyond Resilience Live. This is your host, Dr. Lidiana Garcia, and for today, I am thrilled and a little nervous to share this journey that I've been diving in and exploring more in depth in the last month about the post-traumatic slave syndrome. So that's what we're going to talk today in honor of Black History Month and in my case, in honor to my Afro-Latina side and wanting to explore how my ancestors and their experiences shaped part of my life and how to continue doing the healing necessary for me to keep breaking those patterns and moving forward for the next generations. Not as a savior, not like they haven't broken many. Of course they did, otherwise I wouldn't be here. But more as to continue that legacy of improving and changing things and adapting to the new world that we're living in order to help the next generations to continue healing and contributing to society. Because at the end of the day, that's what it is. I feel like in a way when we are regulated and we're healed and we can provide, provide from this place of being full as opposed to being empty and able to be regulated enough to work towards anti-racism, working first with us and being able to work towards policies and helping others so we can continue to evolve as the human species. So that's in general part of the reason that I've been wanting to dive into this as I'm exploring more my lineage of the African descent. So let's dive in. But before we do some, let me give you a little overview of what are we going to talk? I mean, what am I going to talk today? So first, I'm going to define the post-traumatic slave syndrome. And this whole work about around it is based on Dr. Joy Degree's book. I think I'm hopefully I'm pronouncing her last name correctly. And if not, I'm sorry. And Dr. Joy Degree, she has a book called Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome. America's Legacy of Enduring Injury and Healing. And also I'm going to be sharing a little bit of other information that I've read online, specifically about an enslaved people in Puerto Rico, because that's where it come from, in that Afro-Latina side. I'm also going to share about what does it results in? What are the impacts of this post-traumatic slave syndrome? I'm also going to talk about the importance of healing and then I'm going to talk about different ways that you can start and move into the healing side of this syndrome, because there is a lot that you can do. So I hope this is an episode that can provide a lot of insight. The whole purpose is, again, to move forward in that healing space. There might be information that if I'm mistaken or something, I'm so open for feedback via email, and also know that I'm going to be sharing a lot from my own personal experience as an Afro-Latina that was born and raised in Puerto Rico. So almost half of the book is based on the American slavery and system, and it's really intense. But Dr. DeGree talks a lot about the importance of knowing what really happened, not just saying, oh my God, they went through a lot and we've been through a lot, like knowing the details of what happens, by you knowing, then you can move forward. And the book shares a lot of information that for the majority of it, I did not necessarily was impacted because again, I was born and raised in Puerto Rico. And even though Puerto Rico is part of US, by the time Puerto Rico was taken by the U.S., the um, 
slavery was already abolished. And of course, a lot of things happen afterwards. And there's still, I mean, other impacts like colonialism and oppression and many other things. But I'm just saying that I want to give that caveat that because I was not born and raised here, my, my Black ancestors are not necessarily from the main or the U.S., like North America is more Caribbean. There is a little bit of a nuance and difference, and I'm going to be speaking more from that. Okay, so I'm just giving you that clarification. Alrighty, so let's dive in. So I'm going to start with the definition that Dr. Joy DeGruy has about the post-traumatic slave syndrome. And in her book, she defines it as a condition that exists when a population has experienced multi-generational trauma resulting from centuries of slavery and continues to experience oppression and institutionalized racism today. Added to this condition is a belief, whether it's real or imagined, that the benefits of the society in which they live are not accessible to them. The multi-generational trauma, together with the continued oppression and absence of opportunity to access the benefits available in the society, lead to post-traumatic slave syndrome. And I think this is really important because it's so relevant to what's going on nowadays because we can definitely talk about the continued oppression. And actually, this book was written, the one that I have was written in, I'm looking for it right now, it's that 2005, was published in 2005. So there was not necessarily all the information about what happened in 2020 which it will be interesting in Dr. Degree eventually. I mean, this is already the newly revised and updated version, but if she updated it, she would always be updating that chapter that talks about all the different crimes and oppression and racism that has happened. But in general, I think it's so relevant to speak about this, especially as 2020, as we're starting 2021, we're in that midst of the continued oppression and there is still a lot of racism. Okay, so now in terms of what it results, one of the things that Dr. DeGruy speaks a lot about is how many people, whenever they heard the information that she provided about racism, would respond with something along the lines like, oh, come on, the racism was abolished over 100 years ago, like, Everybody has the same opportunities. Like, why do we keep talking about racism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? And if you're listening to this and that's your in initial response, I would encourage you to continue to listen to kind of see. I'm going to talk a little bit about five different ways that it can impact and continues to impact. And if that's not your thing, then just know that that's what this episode is going to be about. And that might not be your cup of tea for today or not even hearing it. But in general, many people believe that. Many people believe like, come on, it's been over 100 years and everybody has the same opportunity and all this kind of stuff. And it's not. Some of the impact, the post-traumatic or how it manifests, number one is about your beliefs. And this is about white supremacy. So internalizing different beliefs about like how whites are superior and also that internalized or generalization that all whites are against you and all these different beliefs that you create generation from generation that they were based in survival. So a lot of times it was that distinction like my owner was a white person and they were an, technically my enemy. So kind of like generalizing that and then later on, with the racism, the Ku Klux Klan, and so many other things, all those generalized beliefs about not only about whites, but also about themselves, about the world being a dangerous place, about their lives, about their worth, all this other stuff. So that is really important. The second way that it has a big impact is Dr. DeGruy calls it vacant self-esteem which is in other terms, like not even having a self-esteem. And it's very interesting because is that aspect of self-esteem, how Dr. Degree defines it, it's more about your worth. 
and your belief of your own worth. And that starts at birth with our caregivers, how they, what was their opinion about our worth and how did they not only said it, but also demonstrated by their actions and how they treated us and how all of that, that's one way, but it's also influenced by society. And this one is a hard one because for many generations and centuries, there was that belief that Blacks were inferior, right? So there's that worth of you're not worth, you're worthless. And that was done via institutions, laws, policies, and even media. The beauty industry and, and all of you know the media about what is good and not is usually based on white standards. And then there's also community. Your community was in charge of the norms and encouraging conformity to society. And like I mentioned, it's passed via generations. And I think that is really, really important because when we think about worth, if you don't believe that you're worth, then why live? Why would you care? And that's something that was shared a lot in the book. Another way that it manifests or it results in the post-traumatic slave syndrome is via, I would call it hypervigilance which is kind of being super aware of our surroundings and always worrying that something bad could happen to us and being in that fight and flight mode for the most part. And like everything is, is kind of urgent because there was a moment in our lives, in our ancestors, that things were like you made one little mistake and that can cost your life or someone's life that you love. So that was generalized and that was passed on about that sense of urgency and being really aware like that again about that belief that the world is dangerous, which a lot of it was based in reality. It's more about how can you change that, which I'll talk about that a little bit later. But the world is dangerous and nobody's there to take care of me. So I am the sole person to take care of my safety. And that was big. And this one is one of the ones that I would say has impacted me the most. And I, before recording this, I called back my father and was clarifying because there was this story being passed on that seven generations ago, one of my ancestors was the daughter of a slave. And after speaking with him, he was able to call one of his family members, I believe his cousin or an aunt who has done the work on ancestry to get more information. And now it's a little bit confusing about whether that ancestor was really a daughter of a slave or why did they move to Puerto Rico? They came from Antigua. And as I was sharing with him, with my father, I was, well, at the end of the day, I mean, <laughs> anyone that is Black in Puerto Rico came from a slave. You know, at the end of the day, anyone that has Black ancestry, that was the way that they came to the Americas. So, But in general, whether that seventh generations ago, my ancestor was actually the daughter of a slave, and that's why they moved to Puerto Rico or not, in general, that side is the side that definitely has my slave ancestry. So that's, I think, it's important to bring back into perspective about you know, any ancestor that were enslaved and how they got here to the Americas, if you're listening to this here. And why I'm saying this is because if I can compare my mom and my dad, my mom has more Spaniard and perhaps more of the Taino side than my dad, then between comparing those two sides of the family from my father's side, I can definitely see a lot more of the things that I'll be sharing in here. And that sense of hypervigilance was kind of instilled in manifest a little bit more as generalized anxiety and taking everything as urgent. Like I called him, no kidding, like about less than two hours ago. And he's like, well, I have this family member I can call. And I'm like, well, I need it by like in two hours because I need to record this episode. And he's like, no worry, I'll call them now, you know, which is good because I can get this information to finally record it. I've been holding on this. 
But at the same time, it's that idea that everything is like, okay, we need to do it now. And I was raised that way. You know, if there was a problem, it needed to be fixed right away. And it's so interesting because then my partner, my husband, he's not into seeing things urgently as I have. So it's been a very interesting adaptation of me figuring it out because first I thought that he had an issue that he wouldn't take into consideration things that needed to be resolved right away. But then I realized as I'm getting older and exploring different things, and also whenever I have my parents come over, I notice they're specifically more from my dad, but also my mom. I think, well, they've been together for so long. But that sense of like, oh, this is wrong. Let's fix it right now. We need this. Let's get it right now. You know, all that kind of sense of urgency that things need to be done right now, which many people would see that as, oh, great work ethic, great persistence. But it is tainted a little bit with that anxiety. And if it wasn't with that anxiety, but there's that probably like an unconscious fear that if it's not resolved right away, something bad could happen. And that is how I am talking about this hypervigilance, how it's been seen day-to-day life. For me, I've learned to write down things and notice the, I need to do it, I need to do it, but I need to do it. And then being able like, no, it doesn't. Especially this last year and this year has given me the opportunity to be like, that cannot be done right now. (laughs) Even though I feel like the urgency, it does not because I can't. I'm juggling so many different hats, which this could be one of the blessing in disguise of 2020 and this whole thing. But yeah, so it's that sense of like, I need to do this now. And I can feel my body kind of like getting energized and me getting like this energy going outward, like giving me the strength to like run or fight. So that fight or flight mode. And that's different from that sense of urgency, like, oh, it's burning the house. Let's figure it out. Those are moments that you need to, you know, put down the fire. But if it's something that it doesn't need to be done in the moment, necessarily, and sometimes it's difficult to shut that down because when you generalize that anything could be dangerous and you need to be like taking care of yourself all the time and you're in that fight or flight mode, everything can be seen as a crisis. And I think this is really important. The fourth way that the post-traumatic slave syndrome can manifest or result is in that anger. That anger that is justified in many, many different ways because how I see it, I know Dr. DeGruy kind of expressed it in a different way in terms of that anger is the normal emotional response to a blood goal. How I see it, I like to see it more like when we feel anger, a lot of times it's like our bodies or like our internal compass is telling us that we've been disrespected. We've not been honored. We're being taken advantage of. And that's how I like to see anger. And this happened a lot. If you think about the horrendous slavery crimes that occurred, whether it was in Puerto Rico or in the U.S., they were dishonored. They were not seen as human. They were not seen as an equal in that sense of being treated as shit, because that's part of it, and being treated as an animal, as as a different species, as someone that deserves, because the church was involved, and the church was even kind of supporting that cognitive dissonance, that idea that the Africans were less, and they could be doing this work, this free work, this abuse, because they were not Christians or because they were considered less of, because there's so many different instances in the Bible that talk about that kind of, in a way, quote unquote, legalizes slavery. So, I mean, all these things that these owners, the Spaniards, the British, Portuguese, Europeans were taking and using even Christianity as a way to support disbelief and making the general people be like, yes, that's okay. I know we talk about not killing, not doing this, but that's okay to them because they're not us and they're they're less of. So when you have a community of people that have been dishonored, disrespected, being mistreated, it's obviously that one of the responses is going to be anger. And then when you take into consideration everything that happened, not only being robbed from their homes in Africa, being tricked into getting them sold 
And I mean, there's that part of the story that I want to dive later on and read more. There's, it's so limited though. But what happened over there, and I like how Dr. DeGroy kind of mentions that perhaps because slavery was something that existed before the, transalac- the transatlantic slavery, you know, bringing them to the Americas. And a lot of times it was even Africans that sold their fellow Africans. But there's something that Dr. DeGree kind of mentions that left me thinking, which it was in the U.S., slavery, criminal abuse, they were treated very different or they had less opportunities. And yeah, it was more abusive than other types of slavery that existed prior to. And I was even reading some information about the one in Puerto Rico because um, for the most part, it was the Spaniards. And Dr. DeGree kind of mentions another part of the world, and now I, as I was reading, in Puerto Rico as well, because of the Spaniards, some enslaved people were able to, quote-unquote, buy their freedom, or there were ways that they could become free. And I was even reading information about children that were freed by their owners, either when they died or when they turned adult, which it was 25 years old. There was all these kind of things. But in the U.S., that was not possible. That was not available. And they became part of the property and many other horrendous kind of things in terms of the worth of of their homes, of when they passed on their reaches and all that. They were part of it. So what Dr. DeGree was saying, it was more about how perhaps those fellow Africans in Africa couldn't even conceptualize this mistreatment, this extra mistreatment that their fellow Africans were going to experience in the Americas, in the U.S. specifically, because, or even to endure the traveling on the chips and all that. But it was that idea because the slavery over there was different. And many slaves were able to get their freedom after several years, you know, probably like families. And there were all these different paths that they could get the freedom. Not many, but there were some. But in the U.S., there wasn't any. And that's a piece that Dr. DeGree was like, perhaps if they would have known the reality of the abuse that their fellow brothers and sisters were going to endure, they might have not sold them. That's still like a question we never know, right? But it's something to ponder about because a lot of people say, well, they were sold by their fellow brothers and sisters in a way. You know, they were, there was some work on the land over there by other Africans helping into this. So at the end of the day, who knows? But in general, that anger that comes from being mistreated, from being abused, from being considered less of, it's going to boil up. And then whenever there was a little bit of like opposition, it was received with so much more abuse. And it was a public display a very, very dishonored public display. So other people would see, and this comes more a lot from European countries, of doing those displays of abuse so that way other fellow enslaved people would see and be like, oh, I don't want to. If I thought of revolving against my owner, <laughs> that could happen to me and that person received that treatment for X, Y, and C. So there's all that boiling, all that anger, all that, you know, you have children that are also enslaved and you cannot protect your children. Your children can be abused, not only physical, but also sexually by their owners. And I mean, there's so much that obviously this anger can be very much justified. And the last, I mean, there's more, but the last that I'm going to choose to speak about would be going back to the beliefs. So this will be the fifth which is that internalized oppression and the belief of inferiority. And this one, Dr. DeGree calls it one of the most insidious symptoms, uh, post-traumatic slave syndrome, because after centuries of being considered less of, of course, you will internalize this belief that you're less of. And, and when you internalize that belief of being less of, then you will act accordingly and you will continue to perpetuate this even without an owner. And I mean, this could be explained by so many like basic behavioral theories about 
learn helplessness and all these kind of things, which I'll share a little bit more about the multiple ways of healing. But this in itself, it's again, one of the most insidious and one of the hardest one, but one of the ones that you can explore and do a lot of the healing. So even though really it's one of the worst, it also, I feel, has a lot of the potential because this is about your own internal belief about yourself. And of course, is influenced by the systems and many things. But this one, I feel like it can definitely, there's definitely a lot that could be done. In the Caribbean, it was also with the colorism. So the darker of your skin and the worse. And there was that concept of mejorar la raza, which is like bettering of the race, which is something that I experienced more. I definitely noticed that unconscious belief of when somebody married somebody darker than, you know, that idea of even the darker color families wanted their children to marry lighter color to kind of mejorar la raza, to improve the race. And that I, you know, I'm translating. And there was that idea that the darker you are, then the less privilege you have. And that includes your hair, which in my case, now that I'm showing more of my curly hair and I'm trying to explore it and learn about it, because growing up, my hair was, you know, it was like, I need to do something so I don't have pelo malo, like, quote unquote, bad hair. So a lot of those things are more in Puerto Rico and people internalized it again and just go day by day without necessarily questioning all these concepts and names that we call this thing. So those are the five ways that it results in. So now that I share that, and I know this will be a longer episode, I feel it's important to talk about the importance of healing because in Again, there could be so many more to talk about the post-traumatic slave syndrome. But really what I wanted to focus on this episode was to give that piece, but to focus on the healing. Because it is super important that we know that there is potential for healing. And I'm going to read this piece from Dr. DeGruy's book, and it's page 158. And it's a section that starts, Why We Must Heal. We must heal now because our failure to do so will impact the generations to come on multiple levels. First, if we continue to allow ourselves to be victimized by the systems and institutions that have afflicted us in the past, we will demonstrate and model futility and acceptance of despair. And if we fail to recognize the impact that negative patterns of thinking and behavior have on us at the genetic level, we will be the authors of our own demise. We must heal now and give the gift of wholeness to our progeny. So I love this paragraph when I read it because I feel like it's so, so important to go back into that opportunity. And in general, the system, the oppressors, want to keep that idea that there's nothing that can be done. They've stripped apart mentally, emotionally, and physically their oppressed people to make them feel and believe that they cannot do anything. And this happens not only with this topic, with any kind of trauma. As many of you know, I specialize, one of my specialties in trauma is sexual abuse. And one of the things that I notice the most is that for my clients, a lot of it is not necessarily the sexual act that was the most traumatizing piece. Many of them, that piece, they went somewhere else, they numbed, they kind of like froze and dissociated. It was more of the grooming that was involved, that emotional manipulation, abuse, making them feel like worthless, making them feel like this sinful person, that this person that just wanted this act And all those things that they said during the things that they did with them can be some of the most difficult symptoms to manage. And that's that internalized belief that you're worthless, that you deserve this, that you wanted this. So that makes you a bad person. And that makes you someone that does not deserve to be loved, someone that does not deserve to be appreciated or to have the life of their dreams or to manifest things or to do things 
you know, and, and accomplish their goals or do something back to humanity because they feel so bad in their core. And that's what the oppressor wants because in general, they want to continue to oppress you. It's so, so horrendous. And many of my clients and the people that I have worked with that have survived these instances, a lot of times they start initiating that they don't believe that they believe that they're worthless. They believe that they cannot do anything in their lives. And part of my work is not only about the trauma, what happened to them, but also working towards all this internalized negative beliefs about themselves to change those and question those. Because even though they might not be longer with the oppressor, the oppressor is still oppressing them. And that's the piece that it gives me so much like pushing me. I'm very passionate, as you can see, to talk about this because many of them, that they're not with them, they can change the course of their lives. There is that hope and that opportunity. And that's usually part of the first stages of my work is turning on that light of hope. And that is what I want to pass to you. Even though you come from oppressed populations, and I'm talking right now about enslaved ancestors, but this could also be about any other kind of oppressed community. The oppressor did all these things to make the oppressed feel less of, feel inferior. And here you are, passed on generation by generation, and here you are, and you do have a chance to change that. And I hope that as you're listening to this, you do hear my intention of hope, that intention that you do deserve to be whole. You do deserve to be complete. You do deserve to have the life that you envisioned and to live in peace. So now let's talk about different ways that you can heal. And again, like I was saying, I know we're talking about slavery and post-traumatic slave syndrome, but this can be applied to many other situations. Okay. Got inspired there because it's something that I think it's so important. Nobody's damaged. Hmm. You're not damaged. There's ways that you can heal. So let's talk about them. Number one, family. The family is the foundation. And you might, depending on, as you're listening to me, I'm assuming you're most likely an adult. So if you're an adult and you might have come from a family that was disruptive, was toxic, or you put all these different labels to them that just mean that you cannot spend time with them because they have all these different interactions with you that continue to feel like you're being oppressed. So it's like finding, depending on your situation, depending if you need to separate from your family so you can heal and you can get stronger enough. And then later on, if you want to integrate back and just have little pieces that you can go times, but then be able to establish good boundaries and all that. I think that's important. And then there's the other side. If you're listening to me and you're starting a family, you have a family. It's important that you find ways to change that if you do come from a toxic family. And we all have different levels of toxicity. I think it's such a strong word, but it just say like some models and some behaviors that were not necessarily the most helpful for us. And if you come from that and now you're starting your own family, there are so many ways to help you. There are ways that you can explore and you can apply so many different types of parenting. There's I love Latinx parenting and their nonviolent communication. I also love Rosalia with consent parenting and how she provides all this information about just teaching consent from an early on and changing those patterns. And going back to Latinx parenting, she has this idea of the hashtag of end the chancla culture. And I think it's so important because we think physical punishment for the most, can, you can see results right away. They might stop doing whatever they, you did not want them to do or it was dangerous or whatever. But on the long term, it's not one of the best parenting skills to use. And there's others, but sometimes we don't know the others or sometimes we are so overwhelmed. We're going through so much chronic stress that even though we might not want to use it, we resort to it because it's the only thing that we know. So that's why it's important to learn about other models, other models of parenting that can teach you not only like this philosophical, this sounds good, but teach you actual skills to help you do something different. Dr. DeGree also talks about creating virtual villages. If we think about our ancestors, if you're listening to me for the most part and you don't, you know, you're not necessarily 
somebody that comes from like white ancestry and even in their European countries and many of them also share that virtual, I mean, that village, that idea of the village. But for the majority, the Africans, the natives, Americans had a lot of that idea of the village and being raised by a village and everybody supporting each other. And nowadays with this pandemic, it's hard to create something like that, right? Because we're trying to protect ourselves and social isolate, but how to create a virtual village, how to have people that you can create and make a list. And Rosalia from Consent Parenting, she even talks about creating this list of people that are the safe people to be with your children. These people that your children can also resort to if they're going through something in their lives. And I think it's so important. It's something that you can do to bring that sense of stability and help shape a different prodigy and a different future. And if you don't want to have children, even changing those things for you, even creating those boundaries and creating your relationship with your own family can help anyone that comes in contact with you. Because we think, oh, I don't have children. I don't have to care about this. But no, you're still probably in contact with some younger generations that might see you and might be able to go like, wow, that is so helpful. I'm seeing this different way of being and I want it. Emily. Number two, food for life. It's so important about the healthy food. And I love that Dr. Degree added that as one of the healing methods because food can impact us so much. I know I've talked in other episodes about them, but depending on the food that you ingest, a lot of it can have a lot of toxicities and those pesticides, toxicities, and all those kind of things can impact the way that your body is functioning. And if your body is not functioning well, your ability to rationalize, to think clearly, to make better decisions is also going to be impacted, especially if you're also going through different chronic illnesses that when you don't eat healthy can result in. And it's very interesting that a lot of the Black communities, African-American, have a lot of chronic illnesses and the rates about diabetes and heart disease and cancer and many things are really high. I'm even thinking of my fellow brothers and sisters, Puerto Ricans, that there's even some illnesses, some stomach illnesses like Crohn's disease, that one of the places that had the most cases is my little island, which is very interesting that they go and do studies there to kind of figure out a little bit more and learn more about the illness, which speaks a lot about what is going on. What can we not digest? All these years of abuse, all these years of oppression makes you want to not digest anymore and, and kind of like really mess up with your digestion. And our digestion, our gut system is so important. I also have shared that I struggle with some gut issues and part of it, it has to come from my ancestors and the other was how I was raised and to continue to live in that hypervigilance that sense of urgency and having to do everything and being in that fight or flight. Because when we are constantly in those states, our body is not processing food properly. We process food properly, not only breaking it apart, not only having the sufficient acids in our stomachs to kind of break apart the food and then all the different things. And if our bodies are in that relaxed mode, then our bodies can really do all this process. But if not, a lot of the food that is not even digested well goes to places that they're not supposed to. And that can even create autoimmune if they pass into the blood system and all that. So I think it's super important. I know I went to a tangent about the gut and all that, but I think it's super important that we can get empowered in our way of what we eat. And I know, I know that a lot of the minority, especially the African-Americans, in the U.S. and even Puerto Ricans in Puerto Rico, a lot of them are impacted with low socioeconomic, low SES and poverty and all that and all of them, they don't have access to healthy food or their access to be able to afford these healthy foods is limited. And I know all that and that is so part of the systemic piece that needs to be worked on. And there still are ways, there still are ways that if you're going to a fast food, maybe you can integrate like maybe a little bit of the salad combination with the other. So that way you start combining and you start changing little by little. This is not necessarily like from, you know, like a one day you eat all this and then the other day. I mean, there are some people that do that. But in general, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying start educating yourself about the foods that are nurturing, the foods that even your ancestors ate. I think that is so important. 
you know, one thing that is really interesting that I've been lately exploring a lot because my journey of exploring the foods that are helpful for me has been so long, which is could be another episode in itself. But lately, I'm being more into intuitive eating and really listening to my body because I've done so many different diets for the stomach and things continue to be damaged. And it's not what I necessarily eat. Somebody told me this, a somatic um, experiencing therapist. It's not what you eat necessarily. It's also how your body, like when you're eating, are you eating in that fight or flight mode? Are you like paying attention and you allowing the body to rest and digest? That is important as well. So you can be eating the healthier, but if you're eating in a rush, you're eating and you're like in anger and in fight or flight and all that, most likely your body's not going to digest it properly. So it's really important that not only to think about what we ingest, but also the state in which we do. Dr. DeGray also talks about creating an urban garden or finding ways with your community to collaborate with the food and the cooking. Dr. DeGray was like, a lot of these communities are not even cooking because of convenience of they don't have time, they're stressors. And I cannot imagine how many people right now because of the pandemic that their children are not even going to school are just relying solely like breakfast, lunch, and dinner on the cheapest fast food out there. And that is really sad because even though they're quote unquote protecting themselves for this virus, they are, it's almost been a year, they are increasing probably the rates of diabetes, the rates of chronic illnesses, the rate of staying in that state because the food is so important and the state of how we eat it. Number three, learn efficacy to combat, in a way, learn helplessness. So learn helplessness is more like in that internalized that there's nothing that you can do to change anything. It's like lose of hope and how many people just feel that way, that there's nothing that they can do, which is, this is just the way that we were brought. This is just the way that we live. And if you even think about hope or things that you can change, a lot of parents, our ancestors pushed us against that because that was a part of survival. If you imagine you being someone that you live in a condition that's being oppressed and now you have a child and you're trying to like instill some hope in them and you might not because you want to prepare them for the world. So by preparing them for the world might be like instilling in them and, and modeling and saying all these messages about the world not being safe, about people not caring about you and all that. So that way they don't have that oh, wow, people really don't care about me because kids are very innocent. And when they're born, a lot of them, they have like this idea that everybody's out there to protect them and all that. It's us, the parents, and then their experience that shape that. So that is really important. So if you come from that legacy of learned helplessness, like there's nothing that we can do. And a lot of it is justified by actions. Many of them try to revolt like ancestors and, and or change things and still and nothing happened. And we can see right now the frustration that has happened in this last year with all the different manifestations and ways and still there is police brutality. There still being more African-Americans being killed. There still are way more African-Americans in the jail institutions. And I can go on and on, right? So that will definitely give you that sense of like, there's no hope, but there is a way that you can start working slowly if you have that privilege to do it so that way you can model it to other and, and, and it could be passed on. Is that learn efficacy that you do have the potential to change things you do with your work with different things. And that is a perfect segue for number four, which is generational lessons or resiliency. A lot of times we focus so much on that generational trauma, but we forget that our ancestors come from this very strong lineage. Some of the things that are really like if you really think about it, there's that work ethic. And I know one side of that work ethic can be that it could be damaging, but there's that other side that it can really help you to move out of things. You might be in a fight or flight for a little bit so you can work several jobs so you can make some money and you can learn about money, which is another of the, which is, let me say as the next, which is managing our finances in a way that creates stability and wealth. If we really do that, as opposed to like working three jobs so we can buy the shoes, so we can buy this, and we can buy that. But it's like if you work those three jobs and you start managing your finances in a way that within five, 10 years, you'll be able to just work one or even retire, then what's that legacy that you're giving to your future generations? 
even if you have children or not, that people are seeing that people are seeing. And by someone changing their path, that gives the other person that has similar background to be like, oh, that could be the new path. There's also something about the creativity. That's another of the generational resiliency and lessons. We come from very creative, figuring whatever, figuring, I mean, they were given so much difficult circumstances in their life that they had to be creative with what they had in order to survive. So taking and owning that creativity that you have and how can you use it? Dr. DeGruy talks about how forgiving people, the African-American can be in terms of like, with everything that's been going on, there's not necessarily, there hasn't been like a huge revolt or something like a terrorism attack or some stuff like that. And this one, I feel like it could be very controversial for many people. But in general, just think about your family and perhaps it's because of learned helplessness, somebody might say. But in general, like if you think about forgiveness, I think this is a very important one to explore because you don't necessarily have to forgive to heal. But when we don't, we still are attached to our oppressor in many different ways. Dr. DeGree also talks about the spiritual as another of the generation of, about who we know and that resiliency. African-Americans are very spiritual. That's, that's part of, I mean, it was taken out. That was part of the colonization and the oppression that they received when they were brought here. And they, I was even reading that in Puerto Rico, before an owner can purchase it, they had to, as soon as they came out, they had to like do the baptism before the new owner can have them. So they were institutionalized to become, quote unquote, Christian. But in general, they have all this wealth of spirituality that in many cases were considered as dark magic and espiritismo and all these other words and all these different kind of ways. But a lot of it, if you really explore it, is a beautiful tradition about family, about helping others, about community. And if you tap into your spiritual side, that can be very healing as well. In general, it's more about know where you come from, really knowing. Number five, becoming healthier. And I know I already talk about food, but it's not only about eating. It's also about that rest and that exercise, moving our bodies and keeping a weight that is helpful. And I know this is, uh, again, something that could be controversial, but it's just having enough movement in your day, in your life, in your week and resting. Resting is part of being healthier. That is so, so important. Number six, building up the self-esteem. And this is our sense of worth and value. And one of the things that Dr. DeGree talks is about being valuable and having the awareness of the value we produce. That's the way to build up your self-esteem. So doing things that are valuable. And over here, I can speak about finding how can you be valuable to others? And maybe that could be the first. And then you start exploring like, oh, you're being of value. And a lot of times we don't even think about how we're being of value, like moms and caregivers and parents and fathers, how valuable you are to your children. And even if you have a job that you don't like, how often have I gone to places that I've been served or treated by someone, supermarket, a government office, and there is this person that attends me and treats me so nice. And that changes the course of the day because I felt seen, I felt validated. The person was smiling and that can change life. A lot of times we think, oh, it's not until I get this X, Y, and C job or, and we're leaving in still in a white way of what is success and all that. It's more about wherever you are, how can you be of value? And I think this is really, really important. And then increasing that awareness of the value that you produce. And that could go back to all those beliefs of, you know, one of the symptoms of post-traumatic slave syndrome, which is having that internalized belief that you're not good enough or that your work is not valuable because of society and all that. But how can you start first working with yourself? and making, you know, validating how valuable your work is. Number seven, regulating yourself. This is so important to know about where you are in your regulation. Like, are you regulated? Are you not? 
Because when you're not, if you're not more in that fight or flight, fawn or freeze response, then you're easier target to be manipulated. You're not tapping into your highest potential of rational thinking, problem solving, making decisions. You're just reacting out of that crisis mode. And it's not necessarily going to be necessarily the best option unless you're in a real emergency or crisis. So by being able to learn to regulate yourself, then you're able to make better decisions. Then you're able to start applying all these different things. So I think it's super important that we do that. And you can do that. There's so many information over here. I can put the link for the the self-regulation plan. And I talk a lot about this. There's a lot of different episodes. There's a lot of like, if you go to my Instagram, there's a lot of information that I have shared about there. And it's always a work in progress, especially right now with this pandemic. It can be so hard to think about how can I continue to regulate myself in the midst of this chronic stressor. But there are ways. Number eight, which I already mentioned, but I'm going to mention it again, managing your finances in a way that creates stability and wealth. And reading and learning, there is so much vast information, even I'm in California, so in LA, the LA Public Library, there's ways that if you just get the card, which I don't remember, I did it so long ago, I believe it's very cheap or, you know, like if you get it or it can be even free. You can download free books now that you cannot go in person. You can download an app and you can download books in the library for 21 days, or at least that's the app that I had was for 21 days. And you can read. There's so much wealth of information out there. You might be like, I don't know about it. I didn't go to school. You don't have to go to school. There's that idea that's part of the idea of the oppressor that you need to have this degree. You need to do this in order. So that limits your opportunities because if you come from, low SES and you're working your butt off to try to make money, it's harder for you to even think about going into an institution, especially a lot of the graduate schools or even schools have a lot of these oppressive systems in place, right? For you not to be able to accomplish that. But if we go back, there is so much wealth of books that you can read about finances, that you can find this information for free if you do it via a public library or paying between nine and thirty dollars for books that you can read. I'm gonna also link here Linda Garcia and her newer endeavor, which is about the stock market and teaching people about healing financial wounds for the community. I think it's so important that we all work towards that. And number nine, which I love it, is telling our stories. Telling our stories can be so healing. This one it will definitely be for someone that has already kind of done some work because if your quote unquote wound is bleeding, then it would not necessarily be the best moment to share your story because then you're going to get very dysregulated. You might get into all the emotions. You might even feel re-traumatized. But if you've done some work about it and you feel like you're in a better place, sharing that and that vulnerability, like Brene Brown would speak about, can be so, so, so healing. I want to share this piece from Dr. Degree's book, it's page 181. And I mean, it starts at 180. It was a research that I thought it was so interesting. And it was a research that Dr. Duke's wife named Sarah, that she used to work with children with disability, she was noticing something with her students. The ones who knew a lot about their families, they did better when they faced challenges. So they created a measurement. She and her colleague, Robin Fivich, created a measure called Do You Know? And it's a scale to ask children to answer 20 questions. Some of the examples include, do you know where your grandparents grew up? Do you know where your mom and dad went to high school? Do you know where your parents met? Do you know an illness or something really terrible that happened in your family? Do you know the story of a birth? Those are some examples. So they, Dr. Duke and Dr. Fibut, asked those questions to four dozen of families in 2001, and they did it while having a dinner table conversation. And then they compared the results to a battery of psychological tests that the children had taken and reached an overwhelming conclusion. The more children knew about their family's history, their stronger, their sense of control over their lives, their higher 
their self-esteem and the more successful they believe their families function. So this is so important. And something really interesting that happened was that soon after they did this research, two months after to be correct, September 11, 2001 happened. And once again, they were able to see that the ones who knew more about their families proved to be more resilient, meaning that they could moderate the effects of stress better. And this is so important. And as they explore this, they kind of got to this conclusion. The answers have to do with a child's sense of being part of a larger family. The children who have been the most self-confident have what he and Dr. Fibush call a strong intergenerational self. They know they belong to something bigger than themselves. And as I'm sharing about this, I realized when I read that part that this is one of the reasons I feel like I've, I am where I am. I do know a lot from one side of my family. I have a lot of information and I came from a big family and I had that sense of a village. I had that sense that if I made a mistake, I was not only going to let down my parents, I was going to let down my aunts, my uncles, my cousins, my grandma. So I had that sense of community. And I remember learning about my both of my grandmothers, the struggles that they did in order to accomplish and complete a bachelor's degrees of education in a time that you did not need that to be a teacher, but they proceeded to do that. One did it was while having children and working, and the other one didn't before, which can explain a little bit of about the colorism, because the one that did it before and was able to do it before with a lot of challenges, that's more of my white, whiter side. And then the one that had to do it while working and having children was from my darker skin side of the family. But I remember always knowing that, that they did that. My mom and my dad both also had a university degree and they worked. They were also baby boomers and they, it was easier for them to find jobs and all that if you had an education. And I went to a school, they put me in the school that the majority of my peers, they all had those high, higher goals and, and that belief. So I had that sense that that was just part of where I was. I come from this lineage of family that is a big one that I want to make proud and I felt supported. So I think this is all super important. I know today's super longer episode, but I think it's super important. I hope that something from here is really helpful. And what I would say now as I resume and provide a little bit of a general summary about how I've been doing this work. In terms of my family, I am definitely working to, to break some patterns. And it's been hard, especially these days that I'm so overwhelmed. There's days that I scream more than I want to. But then I think about that whole aspect that Dr. Dan Siegel talks about repair and the ways that you can repair. So I kind of repair that and I kind of show that I'm a human being. The way about food, I am working on that intuitive and I'm trying to, when I eat, to be conscious about and help the body to be in that rest and digest mode. So give the optimal, not only with what I ingest, but also at the state of when I'm ingesting the food. I'm also working towards eating a lot of different diverse vegetables and fruits. Something really interesting when I was doing the research about the enslaved Africans in Puerto Rico, their diets, it's some of the foods that I crave when I am having a hard time, which is root vegetables and platanos and ñames and yuca and, and those kind of foods. Batata is what I, what I crave. And what I've been lately wanting to eat more is those root vegetables to bring me back to my ancestors. It was that and bacalao, which is the um, salt fish, and also the rice and beans, which um, sometimes beans don't sit well. But in general, those are the foods that they were accustomed to eating. And it's interesting that that's my go-to at least the root vegetables. And now I, when I read that, I was like, this is so healing when I'm eating that. I'm also bringing that sense of connection. The learn efficacy, I did it via my parents. They instilled so much of that, my family, that I could do it. I saw my parent, my dad making it, quote unquote, in life. And I know that I had in me what it takes. I know that it was going to be harder because 
And especially when I moved to the U.S., now being considered like, who are you? Are you like what? And now I'm like Latina. You're after Latina and all these different labels. So basically like making me not be white or not be American, right? So I knew and I have experienced a lot of instances that things have been way harder. And yet I tap into my ancestors and I tap into that, that I can make it. I can do it. And I have the support, not only here, my family, but also my ancestors in the other realm. The generational lessons and resiliency, something that I've been working on, learning more about my family, where they come from and how creative they were and learning all those stories so I can get that and I can move that and start doing some of more of that, or at least having that again as to help me that sense of learn efficacy. The becoming healthier I'm working towards working out three to four days of doing the spinning, if not yoga or walking, dancing, doing something and showing it to my kids. I remember before being like, I need to go and work out outside. No, now I'm working in the home. I mean, because of the pandemic as well. But I really love that they're seeing me taking time to do that because they're seeing that I prioritize my health, my working out, the exercise and the rest. I am not waking up at four, five, six to meditate or on none of that at this moment because my nights are so random. Sometimes Luna wakes once or sometimes she wakes twice and or my kid has a nightmare or something. So right now I'm in a stage that I'm going to sleep as much as I can because I need it. And it's so important for me. The building up the self-esteem. I My parents helped me a lot in my society, in my community to show me my esteem, but something that was really helpful for me was when I was growing up, I started dancing in eighth grade and it was around the time that I was starting to get bullied. So I think it was great that the timing because the bullying ended like within six months or less, but the dancing gave me that new opportunity. I was able to do performances in live TV and in places that I was really scared. And as a team, we were able to overcome those challenges and fears and then get success or some successful or sometimes we didn't win but we would have that experience and that built my worth and my sense of value and then they saw me and they added me when the teacher was a dance teacher went on maternity leave they asked me to be a dance teacher and to kind of be a substitute and help and I did that and that I was like 17 and that gave me so much a sense of value and I had those little girls between three and five as the youngest, all the way to like 12, 13 that I was teaching in the summer camps as well. And that made me feel so valuable. So one of the things that I really talk to when I work with children or adolescents to the parents is like extracurricular activities are so, so important. They can provide that sense of value and worth and doing it in something that they enjoy because when they enjoy it, they want to do it. The regulating myself, I've been really working on learning how I feel stable, how I feel regulated, and how can I continue to add different things like music, scent, now that it came back after COVID, and different things that I can do on a daily to help me have enough water and move and comfort and weighted lap. And I mean, I talk so much about regulating, but that's some things that have been helpful. Managing my finances is something that I definitely am working towards. It's something that I am, 2020, I was in a master, kind of a mastermind, and and they got us some kind of sheets to help me because right now, yes, I have a husband and he's mostly doing that, but I also need to take ownership of that, especially my father was amazing at managing his finances and all that. So just working towards that money wounds and all that. And also right now I am definitely valuing more my work and really setting the prices for the things that I serve because that's what I feel like I'm valuable and that's what I kind of deserve and being okay with that which has been a big journey and telling my story here I am telling my story I feel like it's so important to continue telling our story so healing this episode has been one of the hardest for me to create And as you can see, one of the longest, but I hope it's one of the most healing one. And if you're still listening to me at this point, in my mind, I salute you. I'm sending you so much love, so much compassion and gentleness. And I believe in you. I believe in your journey. I believe in your ability to heal. I believe in your dreams. And I wish you the best. 
take good care. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. One last thing that I wanted to share was just a reminder about the upcoming event, Emotional Manipulation by Our Parents. This is in collaboration with Nicole Garcia, and you can read more about it over here. It's on Saturday, the 20th of February. The other thing is, if you are a mental health practitioner and you're interested in a mentorship program, I am starting one in the spring, and I'm also going to link here the information for the to get more information and the application process and all that. And it's going to be a six-month program starting in April and ending in six months, I believe is like um, September. Take good care. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Beyond Resilience Life podcast. I'm so happy to have you here. If you like this episode, please make sure to review it and comment on it and share it with your friends and family. Until next time.